This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. So we've got a special show for you today with reports from PW staffers who have been roaming the halls of Book Expo America, or BEA, the largest annual American publisher industry show. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. What do you have on the nonfiction well, side? So at the top of our list, we have Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the Quest for a Fantastic Future by Ashley Vance. And he's the author of Greek Silicon Valley, and this is at number nine on our list, who paints, we say in our review, a complicated picture of a complicated man in this biography of Silicon Valley tycoon Elon Musk. Vance follows Musk from a difficult childhood in South Africa to his education at Queen's University, Ontario, and later at the University of Pennsylvania. We say that Vance ably conveys the reality of this man who is both a dreamer and a doer. Uh, and that's been getting a lot of attention uh, across the board in newspapers and magazines. Next up, we have at Number 17, Undemocratic, How Unelected, Unaccountable Bureaucrats Are Stealing Your Liberty and Freedom by Jay Sekula, one of America's, he's one of America's, according to his bio here, most influential attorneys. He explores the current political landscape in which bureaucracy has taken over our government and provides a practical roadmap to help take back our personal uh, liberties. So, and down at number 31 is a cookbook, Mang Chi's Real Korean Cooking, Authentic Dishes for the Home Cook. And this is one that uh, had, uh, I, I had figured would be getting a lot of attention. The Korean uh, cooking is on on the rise. There's a big mm-hmm. uh, demand for it, a big taste for it. Um, and the author, uh, born and raised in South Korea, who now lives in New York City, she's the founder of the uh, popular Korean cooking website, the same name. And we say in a review in this delightful collection, she showcases the variety and breadth of Korean cooking. And this really is one that um, she's able to show it, you know, how diverse Korean cooking is. But really brings it to American sensibility, at least American kitchen, without really sacrificing any taste, but just breaks down the steps and, and presents it really well. We say she's written an essential cookbook for anyone who wants to learn to prepare authentic Korean cuisine. And that's what we have on a, a nonfiction list. Those are highlights there, anyway. Well, we've got some exciting stuff on the yeah. uh, fiction list. Starting at number five is Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson. Mm-hmm. I always like it when the science fiction fantasy titles go up to the top of the right. list. Uh, <laughs> Beating out the thrillers and the mysteries. I'm I'm a little bit of a partisan there, I confess. Um, we also gave this a starred review. Uh, Stevenson has uh, written a lot of enormous books. This one is no different. It's 880 pages, whopping 35 bucks. Wow. But, uh, you know, you get a lot of bang for your buck. Sure. Um, our review says that this remarkable novel is deceptively complex. It's a disaster story and transhumanism tale that sort of serves as the delivery mechanism for a series of technical 
political and sociological visions of the future. Wow. So Stevenson is really writing about what, what could be uh, more in the, the sense of uh, thought experiments than in the sense of uh, like a dystopian warning or disaster. Uh, and, you know, in, in this particular setup, it's pretty dramatic. The moon explodes and obviously the debris is going to uh, cause the destruction of Earth in fairly short order. Uh, and so people begin to move into the International Space Station. They're trying oh, to fit great. as many people in there as possible. So the book is heroic sacrifices, political upheavals, and disasters. But there are survivors who can repopulate the human race. And that's halfway through the story, at which point Stevenson jumps ahead 5,000 years. Mm. Um, now, if you think what's happened in the last 5,000 years of human history, that's oh a long gosh. time. Yeah, um, right. So he really tries to envision very far out and see what could happen just starting from seven fertile survivors of the human race and where they could go from there. Oh. So it's an incredible vision, and um, yeah, there's a ton to digest, but we say that his lucid prose makes it worth the while. Great. I'd love to see what he, uh, how he describes 5,000 years from now. It, it seems pretty unimaginable, it right? It really does, and yeah. I, I, I'm always fascinated by far future yeah. SF, just the amount of work it takes to extrapolate right. that far out. So that's at number five on our bestseller list. Um, and moving down the list a little, we have an entirely different type of book at number seven, Beach Town by Mary Kay Andrews. Uh, this is uh, basically a, a women's fiction mm -hmm. novel and uh, a, a strong romantic plot set in a beach town. Uh, we don't have a review of this one yet, but uh, it's definitely going to be popular right. with the, the folks looking for something to throw in their tote bags yeah, sure. to yep. take to the beach. So uh, that's at number seven. Uh, moving down a little bit, we actually have quite a lot of science fiction, fantasy, and also horror on the list this week. At number nine is The Scarlet Gospels mm. by Clive Barker. Obviously, Clive Barker's a renowned right. author of horror novels. And uh, those who've seen the Hellraiser movies right. um, have also encountered Barker's work. So here he takes uh, his his popular star from the Books of Blood series and faces him off against Pinhead, who's a, a sadistic sort of demon uh, from the Hellraiser series, uh, and uh, it's it, this is this is one that's pure fan service. You know, if right. you've been following Barker's career for a long right. time, this is the matchup you've always wanted to see. Uh, and uh, he takes them down to hell, which uh, our review says the depiction is Dante-esque in scope and scale, and his descriptions of hell's architecture and denizens form an awesomely mm. creative display of horrific imagination. So wow. that's one for uh, someone who, who wants to stay up through those short summer nights and yeah. be glad the right, sun rises right. early. Uh, the first mystery debut on the list this week is at number 10. Uh, it's Kickback, continuing Robert B. Parker's Spencer series, uh, uh, in this case continued by Ace Atkins, uh, who's uh, kind of trying to keep the, the Parker mm -hmm. series alive and uh Spencer is a Boston PI, very famous uh, as you know, one of the the kind of core canonical yeah. PIs in uh, the the 80s and 90s canon. Uh, and we say that Atkins does a splendid job of capturing the voice of the late Robert B. Parker in this uh, investigation. So that's one for the mystery fans. Uh, and I just wanted to touch on a couple of books of interest a little further down. Um, we have uh, at 
number 25, The Perfect Letter by Chris Harrison. Mm -hmm. You don't often see men writing romance novels. And this one's also interesting because Chris Harrison was the host of The Bachelor and The Bachelorette TV shows. So he's seen a lot of love in action. Right, right, exactly. Um, And in this case, uh, he writes from a woman's perspective in this particular. uh, (laughs) Wow particular book and um, our review isn't up yet will be shortly but uh, we say he's surprisingly convincing writing from the the woman's point of view uh, in this contemporary romance and uh, he'll keep readers turning the pages all the way to the end wow solid first novel and uh, finally just down at number 34 i want to congratulate our guest last week naomi novik on uh, uprooted Fantastic. Making it onto our bestseller Fantastic. list. Fantastic. So, well, great. well yep. deserved. Uh, and uh, you know, hopefully she'll she'll be pretty happy with that news. Perfect. So that's what we've got. Um, lots and lots going on. Lots of big summer books starting to come out, and uh, we'll see more of them in June and July. Excellent. So I'll be talking a whole lot during our bestseller oh, segments. That's really good. And uh, yeah, I think I think you had picked uh, Naomi's uh, for getting on the bestseller list. I, I thought it was likely, yeah. uh, and I'm really glad to see it there doing yeah. so well. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's that's a big triumph for her. Very good. I'm Mark Rotella, and I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW senior correspondent Claire Kirk calls in from the BEA show floor. We'll be right back. I'm Kabir Segel, author of Coint, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today, PW senior correspondent Claire Kirk is on the line from the Book Expo America show floor. Hello, Claire. Hello, Mark. Hello, Rose. Hi, Claire. It's great to have you in New York with us, uh, a little far from your usual Midwest beat. Uh, How are you enjoying Book Expo so far? I am, as always, enjoying Book Expo. This is actually my 20th year going to Book Expo. Yes, my first Book Expo was in 1995 in Chicago. So here I am in New York, and I really love to take a big bite out of the Big Apple at Book Expo, and then I go back home and uh, write up my stories. So you were there from the beginning, from yesterday. Now, yesterday, we uh, Book Expo America started a day earlier. It was actually a half-day show. Yes, I actually got here. I stood online with the other excited Book Expo attendees. We stood online for about half an hour, and then the doors opened at 1 p.m., uh, the doors to the the show floor, and we poured in, and it was it was pandemonium, but it was a happy pandemonium. So they they kept you standing outside the Javits Center in the in the baking hot sun uh, at noon. Not in the heat, no, oh, no, okay. not outside. But we stood in that uh, in the atrium there entrance hall. Yeah, that yeah. atrium area. So it's very pleasant, and the registration desks were. There were lines of people at the registration desk, and uh, the um, book TV truck was there, and just a lot of people were rushing back and forth, to and fro, and there was a huge line of people, and we just couldn't wait until 1 p.m. So give to us storm the, the show floor. So give us a little sense of uh, how Book Expo has changed since the first time you went 20 years ago in Chicago. Oh, my gosh, I was such a child then. Um, <laughs> I was uh, the marketing manager for a small 
feminist press in Duluth, Minnesota called Spinsters, Inc. So, and we were on the gay, lesbian, and feminist aisle at Book Expo in Chicago. It was the first year it was at McCormick Place. And it was so overwhelming because it was so huge mm. in Chicago. And, of course, it was my first time, but it was much larger then than it is now. And I remember at McCormick Place that first year it was there, the, the concession stands ran out of food. And there were long lines of people trying to escape from McCormick at the end of the day, and there weren't <laughs> enough taxi cabs. And, and so now it's much more, it's really a well-oiled machine here at Javits. There's never a shortage of cabs. There are plenty <laughs> of food options. There are fewer booksellers. I see a lot of, I walk around the aisles of Javits now, and there are so many books, uh, so many publishers and so many booksellers who aren't there anymore, and mm. uh, the numbers are smaller, but at the same time, uh, there, there's this stronger sense of community, and the, the people who are now, we who are there at Book Expo, I feel like are uh, survivors. They know they're doing business. It's not gimmicky. There aren't like costume characters running around as much as there were back in the 90s. It, it seems it's a more business-like show, but at the same time, because it's been 20 years for me, it's also like a college reunion. Mm-hmm. Like yesterday, I ran into David Wilk, and he used to be the head of our distribution company, um, Inland. InBook Inland was our Spencer's Inc.'s distribution company. And here we were 20 years later, and now he's with Simon & Schuster, and I'm with Publishers Weekly, and it, it's always marvelous to me to see how how we're all the, there's so many of the same people are here, but we're all doing different things, but we're still here in the book business, and it's exciting. I, I love coming to Book Expo every year. Do Do you feel a bit like you're working for the man now? I mean, you've been you're you're you've gone from the small feminist press to PW, and uh, your your friend went from a small distributor to Simon and Schuster. Have you been absorbed into the establishment? Oh, that's a that's a good point. That's a good point. In a way, yes. I'm now I'm part of the establishment, but um, it, it is a reflection of the times as well that that publishing is more establishment than it used to be. For instance, you know, we had the gay, lesbian, feminist aisle back in the 90s, and we don't have that aisle here anymore. So Mm. I guess I'm just following the flow and, yeah, working for the man, literally. But still, I'm doing what I love, and I'm very committed to, because I work for a small press, and I know how difficult that is to get attention at Book Expo when you're a small press, so I'm very committed to sussing out the great books from the small presses and making sure that we give them, that we at Publishers Weekly give them some attention as well as the books from the, the big publishers like Simon & Schuster. So I was walking the floor today. Today was my first day on the floor. It was pretty exciting. I mean, people were, uh, they, they seemed genuinely happy to be there. I know it's a big long several weeks or months in preparation for it but um i I felt it was kind of optimistic today what were you what was your take on the floor i i totally agree with you yesterday i felt that um people seemed a little 
downbeat than today. T- today, people were very upbeat and very excited and very happy. The the floor was packed today. It was like Grand Central Station at rush hour at times. And and yesterday, it seemed just a little... I think that, that starting the show right after lunch when it's, you know, siesta hour, that might have made people a little more down than they would have been otherwise. But today, people were really... They were they were very a hap, very happy crowd, and there were long lines of people for offers, right? Making around the exhibit hall. In fact, I, I do have to say I have to give a shout out to Libba Bray. She's a YA author. She wrote uh, The Diviners, hmm. and her second novel is called uh, Lair of Dreams, and it's uh, they're published, I believe, by Hachette. And she was doing her author signing today at like one p.m. And I, I can't believe how long that line went on. It snaked around several aisles, and then it went actually went outside. The line ended outside wow. the exhibit hall area. It was insane. And she here she is. She's a YA author, and her line must have been the longest line in the history of Book Expo. I've never seen a line like that. Was it mostly adults? Uh, yeah, yeah, because uh, it's not book time yet, so mm-hmm. the, uh, I did not see any teenagers. I saw people of all ages in that line. It, even though it's a YA novel, I read it because I read a lot of YA, and it's. I think actually it's too scary for YA. It's kind of an adult book to me, but but there's it, it's it's a crossover novel that. Teenagers do read it. My teenager read it, and she agreed with me. It's pretty scary. Mm. But adults can read it and really appreciate it as well. And I think that was reflected in that incredible line of men and women and old and younger booksellers in that line. It It was huge. Wow. I wish now I'd taken photos. So tell us about some of the panels you had covered you yesterday and today. Or lunches? Uh, okay. You covered a couple of lunches, or at least one lunch or one breakfast. Yeah, I I am assigned to cover the children's breakfast uh, tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. But I, uh, Judith Rosen, our um, book selling editor, covered this morning's breakfast, mm. and it sounded like it went really well. the The speakers were um, funny; they were thoughtful. Uh, they were appreciative of all the efforts that the booksellers make to get their books into the hands of readers. I heard it was a wonderful breakfast. I, I wasn't there, but um, Jim Milliot, our editorial director, he presented the uh, Bookseller of the Year Award to Mitch Kaplan of Books and Books in Coral Gables, Florida, mm-hmm. and also uh, Jennifer Sheridan, uh, who is a rep with, I can't, I think she's a penguin. Random House rep. She was the the book. Uh, she was the sales rep of the year uh, this year, and she also received her award. And I ran into Ted Heineken, who received a Lifetime Achievement Award. He uh, from PW. He just retired from being a sales rep in the Midwest for for more than fifty years. That's like. That's wow. 50 years. Yes, I know. That's pretty and, impressive. Um, he, he received a Lifetime Achievement Award, and he told me how moved he was at the breakfast uh, to receive it. And he said that he made a short presentation. So even though I wasn't there, I heard really great things about the breakfast. Uh, today, I, I didn't cover any panels yesterday, but today I covered uh, a panel on 
how booksellers are using social media to promote their bookstores and to build community. And that was really inspiring to me because the four booksellers on this panel, uh, the booksellers were uh, represented by uh, Tattered Cover, Literati uh, Bookstore in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, Book People in Austin, Texas, and uh, Parnassus in Nashville. So you had these four booksellers from different parts of the country talking about how to strategize using social media Mm. to build community and to bring customers into their bricks-and-mortar bookstore. And it it was a fascinating panel. I I learned a lot from it, and I think the 120 booksellers who were there in the room with me also learned a lot about how to strategize in using social media to... um, to bring customers into their store. So you had mentioned, you know, you talked, you, you're comparing from uh, 20 years ago to, to now, um, the, the difference in publishers. But what about uh, some small press books, uh, some small presses that you've seen, that you, whose booths maybe caught your eye? Well, I have to say Coffee House Press. Uh, they're they're based in Minneapolis, so they're one of my people. Right, and they have knocked it out of the ballpark this year with uh, one of their uh, fall releases. It's called "The Story of My Teeth" by Valeria Lucelli, and uh, her previous novel was uh, "Faces in the Crowd." And uh, apparently, this novel is just blowing away booksellers. And it's very impressive because Coffee House, they're a tiny publisher, mm-hmm. and they're not even in New York. And the, their book is one of the buzz books at this show. Their book is being talked up in the same way that City on Fire is being talked up and uh, the Jonathan Franzen novel, Purity, that, that people are really excited about the story of my teeth. And uh, so kudos to Coffee House for just putting out a great book and for attracting the attention of booksellers. And Akashic Books, which is in Brooklyn, they've also, there is another small press that they put out a big book by Joe Mano. It's called uh, Marvel and a Wonder. And it's a a coming-of-age kind of novel. A grandfather and his grandson take a road trip together through rural America. And uh, it's another novel that a lot of people, a lot of booksellers have been talking about to me. Uh, it seems that the, the small presses, they're, they're publishing some really excellent books these days, and their marketing efforts are bearing fruit. Gray Wolf is also publishing some wonderful titles that, that booksellers are talking up. Cinco Puntos is also publishing some good books. I'm, I'm, try, I'm desperately trying to remember the title that, of uh, one of the novels that Mitch Kaplan of Books and Books was talking up to me. He was really excited to see it. And um, the, the, the uh, consortium aisle was really packed with booksellers. Yeah. Oh, it's called, okay, Mitch Kaplan, um, earlier today he was talking to me about a novel called Sofrito that is published by uh, Cinco Puntos, and he was talking about how great the, this novel is going to be, and it has a Cuban-American protagonist, and uh, it's going to sell very well in his store, which is in the Miami area. And that's especially timely right now with the, the shifting in trade relations between the U.S. and Cuba. 
Uh-huh. Yes. I think there will be more attention paid to uh, Cuban-American authors with, with uh, the change in the status quo, indeed. Great. Well, Claire, thank you so much for taking some time to call us. I know you're super busy uh, roaming the show, but uh, have, a, have a great time at the rest of it, and uh, hopefully we'll see you in the office before you go. Oh, yes, definitely. Thanks for talking to me. It's always great to have you on. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot will give us his take on BEA, so stay tuned. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW Editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. We've got a double helping of PW expertise for you today. PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to give us his sense of Book Expo America. Hi, Jim. Hey, Rose. Hey, Mark. Hello, Jim. You made it back to the office. Yeah, I followed Mark's footsteps and uh, walked. <laughs> Claire, Claire was just saying how wonderful it is that there were plenty of cabs. But I guess the two Not of you, for us. The two of you missed them all. Um, so how's BEA been treating you so far? Yeah, it's been good. You know, it's, uh, I think I talked about once before and Claire may have mentioned that um, it started a little different this year with the one o'clock start instead of uh, the nine o'clock start on a Wednesday. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think yesterday was probably a little lighter in terms of people on the floor than uh, it has been in past years on day one. But uh, Thursday uh, today was definitely very lively and, uh, you know, long lines uh, for uh, the big authors at the big houses waiting for autographs. The autograph section seemed really crowded. Um, so, you know, it's been good. Yeah, I did hear, uh, I talked to a couple of attendees and a couple of publishers who said yesterday that for the publishers, some had said it was just a little too slow for them. Others were happy to have that time to set up and, and like kind of have a slow glide into uh, BEA. But the attendees all seemed to really like it. The ones who were there said that they have they had a lot more room to walk around. They could take their time and really... Check you know check check out some books. Yeah, and actually, I talked to somebody too. I mentioned that same thing about well, it was a little easier to navigate, and yeah. it was kind of uh, an easing into it. So right, right. I, I don't know if they can tout that as a benefit, right. but it, it, <laughs> right, it's right. what happened. Yeah. So last time we had on the, on the show, we talked about who we had named our uh, uh, bookseller of the year. Uh, and you presented the award, was it yesterday? No, it was this morning. This we had, uh, that's one of the things uh, with the change in the show. There used to be two adult breakfasts, the right. Wednesday and Thursday, but there's only one now. So, yeah, we uh, presented it uh, to uh, Mitchell Kaplan from Books and, uh, Books and Books. Which everyone is surprised that we had not given it to, you know, that, that he, he had not received the award <laughs> before. Right. Well, that's certainly, uh, every, every few years, I think that comes up. It's like, you mean they didn't, you know, uh, yeah. books and books and Mitch didn't win before, but yeah, that was definitely the case. Um, and I think it was well received. Um, Mitchell's done, you know, amazing job down in South Florida. Yeah. Um, he's leveraged the books and books brand, you know, they're in the Cayman Islands. He's got two other three stores down there. 
Um, and he does some publishing. So it's, it's, a, it's a great operation he's got down there. And the, as we said, the, uh, the award was well-deserved. Yeah. And we also, this morning, you know, we usually do t two awards. We did the Rep of the Year Award, who we went to Jenny Sheridan. But we also did our, our first ever uh, Lifetime Achievement Award, which we gave to uh, Ted Heineken. And Ted was uh, one of the first uh, independent sales reps. Right. Mm. Um, he got in the business in 1963. Wow. And was uh, selling books for uh, various publishers throughout the Midwest up until uh, February. That was back wow. when they were all copied by hand by Monk. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, it's he said one, you know, the original Barber's Bookstore in Chicago is actually owned by Barber, and a few of the original bookstores in Chicago, uh, in Chicago land, were actually owned by the people who founded them. So that sounds uh, like a, a pretty amazing achievement, 50 years in, in the business. Yeah, and um, I think um, he got a really sustained and loud uh, applause. I think uh, one, of the, one of the loudest applauses we've heard in you know, giving out these awards over the course of many years now. Yeah. And we're also at the same time you are, um, uh, I mean, we're, we're putting out the show dailies, the uh, first one uh, yesterday, today. We've got one coming out tomorrow. And they seem, they're pretty hefty. They're pretty <laughs> thick. <laughs> I remember. So we got a lot of good stuff going in there. Yeah, well, there's always, there's, and honestly, I think there's too much going on at BEA, but I yeah. shouldn't say that. Um, but, you know, it really is, even the show has evolved, and I think Claire might have mentioned that. In, in the old days, it was, you sold a lot of, a lot of, you could sell a lot of rights, and not right. Well, some rights, but you also sold a lot of books. Right. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a lot of orders. It right. was really a book sell, you know, publishers sold to the booksellers. But now it certainly has evolved into a much more of an old industry show. Right. Where uh, you might write some orders, but you're there to meet maybe distribution clients or the media or your international partners. And so, you know, there's just, you know, an overwhelming amount that goes on for, you know, two and a half, three days. So you, you're probably talking to a lot of people um, while we're uh, running around the show floor. You're talking to people at higher levels, uh, publishers, and uh, going to different kinds of panels. Tell us about who you've been talking to and what, what other panels or events you've been going to. Well, one of the things that, you know, that does revolve around the show are there are these other conferences in the IDPF, which is the International Digital Publishers Group right. um, holds have been holding their conference now around the show for a number of years. So we were on that panel yesterday, and it talked about uh, the headline of our story. Since you mentioned Show Daily, is that the dinosaurs are revolving, um, and it, it picked up on a, a comment that was made by one of the pub, uh, one of the panelists about how like a lot of the general media likes to portray book publishers as you know old fashioned and you know dinosaurs right. and it's really not true mm. <laughs> because there's an awful lot of digital um publishing that goes on right you know uh you know 30 percent of sales more or less now are digital mm. and uh, there was three you know, publishers from simon and schuster mcmillan and harper collins around the panel and they all described of some length you know how they have um changed their whole, you know, workflow and all their operations and a lot of the thinking that's gone on, um, you know, and how you have to approach the market and how you have to manufacture for the market. Um, so, you know, it's true. They, you know, people that hire data scientists now to try to analyze, you know, sales patterns. And it's, there's a whole new skill set that's involved in that. So it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a cheap 
you know, tactic to say, oh, book publishers are so behind the curve when it, when they're really they're not. They're doing they're doing a lot. So that's yeah. that's where that remark came. Kind from. of like the saber baseball saber metrics of of, of publishing. I mean, I will use Vulcan saber metric. They talk about one of the things that is you know came up quite a bit during the show is all the metrics that you can have now for who's right. reading what. If it's you know you get it from the subscription services or or other uh, online um, and digital endeavors that will, can actually track, you know, who's buying what and what, how much they're reading and that right. sort of stuff. So, um, you know, there's a lot, a lot that's going on, um, you know, on the technology front. And I, I really think it's unfair that the paint the publishers as having their head buried in the sand when, right. <laughs> when they certainly haven't been. And in some cases, I, I can't say who the guy I was talking to, but it was one of the bigger houses you know, he was saying, you know, like five years ago, the predictions were by this year it would be 50-50 digital and print. Right. And it's, you know, it's now 70s print still. Mm-hmm. And so in some cases, some people may have overreacted to digital and kind of rushed headlong into, right. oh, we have to change everything around as quickly as we can. Um, and they did. And, you know, that. You know, nobody's kidding themselves that the digital transition is, you know, permanent. Right. But it wasn't the revolution that was going to bury, uh, bury everybody. That was going to put print out of business. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and they make so many parallels to the things that have really struggled. I think we might have mentioned on the show before. You know, music when went digital was crushed. Right. And that's going to happen to books and then newspapers and even some magazines. But you know, publishers still be able to have been able to sell digital books yeah yeah um so you mentioned data analysis people have kind of presented publishing for a long time as as an industry that defies data i mean how do you take a bestseller and say based on this we can make another bestseller and uh is is that sense changing now i know that when i've talked to people outside publishing about how little analysis there is of what makes a successful book and how to uh, learn from that to make more successful books. They're always just astonished. But it's, it's such a matter of taste. Well, there is, I mean, we, we don't want to oversell the metrics. They're better at kind of seeing the sales patterns of existing um, of existing books and how you can meet demand and be more mm. efficient and that sort of thing. Um, but you're 100% right. I mean, it's, it's art and science and taste combined because we all know you don't really you can't really predict what's going to be a bestseller. They haven't got to that point. But, you know, publishing is a great copycat industry. Mm. I mean, nobody really did erotica until E.L. James came along. And then <laughs> there was, you know, erotica book being sold every day, practically, it seemed like. Yep. So, you know, it's... But there are... And they do try to understand what the readers want more. Um, there's more surveys going on. Publishers actually have more data on, you know what is selling the hottest. So there's certainly, I think we talked about coloring books on the show a few mm-hmm. weeks ago, right? Yeah, that was very I mean, interesting. Now you can see, I mean, you, you would have found this, you know, 10 years ago because eventually it would have percolated. But now you can go to BookScan and some other point of sale information. And when you see, you know, three or four coloring books rising on the top of the charts, it's, it's quickly evident what's hot. And then the copycat mentality falls in yeah. and everybody has a coloring book. But... Right. To be fair, a lot of them sell. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So um, there's been some controversy over China being the featured country this year. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, well, yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. Um, because 
China, I was actually surprised by how much an effort they made in coming over here. I mean, I think we talked about their their booth is 25,000 square feet. That's astonishing. And it is... It is really big. <laughs> it's huge. I, I, I felt like I was walking across the country, just walking across there. Yeah, I mean, I, I did. A, I, I, well, it goes from the 1800 aisle to the 1000 aisle. Yeah. And it takes like, and then half of, uh, half of the hall going in the other direction. Wow. Um, so, and I, I do think they're committed to a couple of things. They are trying to get Chinese books more accepted in the West. They're trying to get push uh, Chinese authors into, uh, into the Western uh, countries and not make it such a thing that, you know, they import a lot of books, but they're really trying to establish more of an export market for themselves. And they're trying to say, you know, they're trying to say, hey, look, we want to be, um, we want to be a, considered a major player in the publishing world, which has, you know, pretty much been Europe and U.S. centered. Mm. Um, so, they, you, know, they, you know, they sent over over 500 people and there was this panel yesterday that a lot of, you know, big shots in the, you know, in the United States industry as well as some other international publishers were there. And, you know, they are respecting copyright a lot more, which is, from the American publisher's point of view, uh, is critical. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, piracy has always been a problem. Some of it sanctioned, some of it not. But now they have been stepping up that. Um, all that said, um, there's certainly plenty of censorship going on there. And, you know, I think it's important that, you know, Penn um, raise these issues. And, you can, it, and in some ways they acknowledge it. I mean, we had, did have a story about, you know, what things work and what things don't work. And the, the publishers in China will tell you, well, we, we'll turn certain things down because we know they won't pass the censures. Right. right. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that's like, that's going through the formal channels. So you can think of your sort of a dissident writer, you know, what luck you might have. Over right, the, right. That sounds pretty uh, complicated. Yeah, I, I think complicated is a good word. <laughs> um, but it, so have the, I know that there were protests um, on the front steps of the New York Public Library main branch. Did the did protesters actually show up I at did the not, I didn't see any. And I know um, security going into the Chinese panels was, I mean, not extremely heavy, but it was a little heavier than... No, mm. normal. They wanted to make sure you had a badge and that sort of thing to get in. I mean, that was as long as you had a badge, you could get in. They were right. But screening it. No, no it metal detectors. No metal detectors. No armed <laughs> guards. But you know, three or four big-looking guys. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, you know, it's an issue. It has to be worked out. You know, amongst all the players. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so beyond that, do you have any uh, particular sense of the the vibe this year as compared to past years? Um, people feeling pessimistic, optimistic, and the industry in general. Um, you know, I think uh, there's still a general sense of overall optimism. I, I think right now, the first part of the year, nothing too exciting book-wise has happened. Mm. Um, so I think that's kind of hanging over the show a little bit. But there's a lot of promise for the fall. Of course, Go Set a Watchman is coming out in July, mm-hmm. so looking forward to that. And there's a lot of a lot of big books coming out in the fall and. You know, you go to the show and it's like 30,000 titles or whatever. So some of these, I'm sure, are going to uh, are going to hit. So, I mean, it's I think it's a testament to the creativity and you know, the vibrancy of the book market. Actually, there's still all these publishers go and all these titles are being marketed. 
That sounds very exciting. Well, I haven't been to the show yet, but uh, you've got me looking forward to it tomorrow. Well, have fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's my plan. And um, are you anticipating anything big for the book con part of it, which is when it opens to the public on the weekend? Right. Well, the last they were to- they've talked about, they're expecting the fifteen to twenty thousand people. Wow. You know, last wow. year it was capped at ten. Um, so it's going to be lively, I'm sure. <laughs> They're promising more of uh, anybody who went last year. It was a little chaotic. They're promising it will be more orderly. Mm. Um, That'd be nice. And I think, I think that's, that's a, a good uh, thing to shoot for. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see if it's the same demographic that turns up. I mean, mm. I think we mentioned that um, it was, they were surprised by the amount of young adults, particularly uh, young women and older girls. Um, so that's what they've kind of skewed it towards this year. I did talk to one publisher who wasn't going to go to BookCon because they said, we publish nonfiction for adults, so mm-hmm. why would I come? Right. So Interesting. Yeah. Wow. So that's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy there. It could be. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, it'll be uh, interesting to see what happens. Thank you so much for coming over and giving us your recap, Jim. Uh, Always glad to be here. Always a pleasure. I'll see you on the floor. (laughs) (laughs) And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Sarah Fort, author of Sprouted Kitchen, Bowl and Spoon, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Kate Bollock, author of Spinster, Making a Life of One's Own. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Also subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 